Welcome to another episode of Nipe Story. This is a fortnightly podcast that brings you audio versions of short story fiction from Kenya and across the continent. I'm your host, Kevin Mwachiro. And on this episode, we are featuring a story by Mudoni Garland, titled Kissing Godot. Rebecca's swollen stomach was encased in a sleeveless, lacy dress that looked like a petticoat. Her pregnancy, his dead brother's baby, glowed at Steve. I'm looking at Godot's son. Steve and Rebecca were seated sideways at a ridiculously small table at the Burger Den in Nairobi West. Cash money boomed on the music system. Steve sneaked glances at Rebecca. She looked thick and juicy. He willed his eyes to move up from the plump pillow of her breasts to focus on her face. The softness of her powdered skin, her flaring nose and pliant mouth contradicted her angular jaw and pulled apart cheekbones. She'd painted a black line along the edge of her squishy lips, a dark perimeter fencing shiny red lipstick. Bits of color rubbed off as she bit into her beef burger. She moved her shoulders to the music. Hey! I'm here. Look up. Look up, Steve. Talk to me. He cleared his throat. <clears throat> uh, uh, are, you, are you cold? You can have my jacket. What he really wanted was for Rebecca to cover up her breasts, her body. Rebecca raised her pencil-thin eyebrows and shook her bob. The permed hair whipped back and forth, exaggerating the movement. She didn't seem like the girl Steve had known and watched from afar these last 12 years. And it wasn't just the glowing pregnancy or the careless way she chewed or drowned her chips in tomato sauce. Rebecca seemed barely contained, soft yet hard, undeniable. The words he'd rehearsed since Godot's funeral disappeared. He felt anxious. The waiter refilled their cups. Hey! Jaza kabisa, she scolded the waiter and turned back to Steve. Even you, you should demand they fill your cup to the top. Kwani, why is this place trying so hard to be posh? We are miros. Steve hated the way she debased the word miro, implying anything black African could never be posh. Um, it's not about race, he said, running his finger around the rim of his cup. In an economic downturn, it's easier to maintain profits by reducing portions than by raising prices. She slapped the side of her head. The pink and red sparkles on her oval nails glittered. Ah, let me guess. Nairobi University, second year economics. Over the booming music, she shouted at a waiter. Chief, bring me another burger. And don't hold back the beef and all the toppings. Jaza kabisa. She laughed, mouth wide open, shoulders shaking, breasts trembling. Steve let embarrassment fuel negative thoughts. Barely ten in the morning and she was shoveling it in, he thought. Even if she was eating for two, how did she have space for two burgers and chips before midday? If she ain't hungry, she ain't for me. Now what I mean, his late brother Godo used to say, in exactly the same mock American movie cowboy chewing a matchstick from the side of his mouth way that Steve would say, if it ain't 4D, it ain't a game. Know what I mean? The coffee scalded his tongue. Steve's eyes watered. 
The pain drew his attention to Rebecca's discomfort. He noticed her shredded napkin, noted the way she kept patting her bump as though to calm the baby or perhaps herself. It occurred to him that she was probably being aggressive to camouflage her anxiety. Steve's own mood echoed the sag of his trousers. He'd lost four kilos. Godot would have said Steve's frame looked a duplicate of Dr. Patel's. He of no bum. The doctor who'd pulled the humane plug and filled on Godot's death certificate exactly one month before. Complications arising from compromised immune system. Compromised. Cut to size. Steve had overheard relatives backbite Godot in the days leading to the funeral. Ugh, men are dogs. Instead of cutting it off, they think they can, they can cure it with virgins. Mm. Godot dipped all over the place. Mm. Did he think he was immune? The weight of these depressing thoughts pressed on Steve's head. A burst of laughter at the next table put him over the edge. Steve had selected the burger den for the meeting, thinking its noise would minimize awkward silences between them. He now realized it was not conducive to discussing the baby with Rebecca. Um, we should go. Steve stood, tightened his belt. That created gathers, so he untucked his shirt and thought to hell with the fact that he'd only ironed the part that showed. He dropped notes on the table to pay the bill and added coins to tip the waiter. Without argument, Rebecca rose and then looked down and brushed away crumbs. An old man passing by eyed Rebecca's generous cleavage and startled himself into a coughing fit. Rebecca grinned at him. The oldie's partner, a beefy lady whose red belt divided her stomach into two generous halves, sucked her lips at Rebecca. Steve could not suppress a chuckle. Rebecca quipped, Okay, some women are jealous for nothing. Ugly spirit. Woof, woof, ugly, eh? Her questioning inflection was an invitation to Steve, a nod to something shared. When he failed to respond to it, Rebecca excused herself, went to the toilet. Steve waited outside. He leaned against a shop, glad for the respite from her. It would give him time to recover from the stab of betrayal that had swallowed his tongue. The history of the expression, woof woof ugly, belonged to him and his late brother Godot. When Steve was six, a neighbor's Alsatian had chased him round and round Baba's frog-like Citroen, whose tires had been stolen long before they were born. In response to Steve's screams, his parents had rushed out of their three-bedroomed home in the Ngong Hills. In the vegetable patch that served as their front garden, Baba waved his walking stick at the dog, shouting, Shoo! 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 Mama rushed to the fence, calling for God, neighbors, anyone, Yesu Christo, to save her son. In her arms, baby Annie, then two, wailed a gibberish that sounded like, Unfair! Unfair! Though it could have been, Air! Air! Godot had the presence of mind to grab Baba's walking stick. Baba was lame in one leg and promptly fell over. Like a domino effect, Steve lost his footing and fell too. He scrambled round, saw the beast's drooling mouth over him. 
with shiny canines about to tear him into pieces. Steve opened his mouth. Nothing came out. He heard a sickening thud as Godot whacked the dog with Baba's stick, yelling, Woof! Woof! Ugly! The dog yelped, and with tail tight to its belly, fled tearing through Mama's rows of cabbage, courgettes, and coriander. Woof! Woof! Ugly! Woof! Woof! Ugly! Godot and Steve screeched, rolling on the ground in relief and laughter as the dog whimpered in its kennel next door. Woof! Woof! Ugly! But Baba, the ex-Mau Mau general who'd fought for Kenya's independence from the British and often shared stories of daring exploits in the forest, who wore his withered leg as a badge of honor, he didn't laugh at all. My son is a hero, he said in all seriousness. Gordo is a hero. Baby Annie clapped and babbled what sounded like, God hero, God hero. Much laughter followed as Baba made her repeat it over and over. God hero, God hero. From then on, it seemed to Steve that Baba dedicated himself to highlighting and celebrating Godot's manly virtues. As long as he didn't whine or show tears or surrender, Baba ignored, explained away, or forgave Godot's all mistakes. Perhaps Baba was mortified for not rescuing Steve himself, or preferred not to see the instrument that exposed his weakness, but it seemed that from then on, Steve became lost to him. And due to her focus on the baby's and only daughter's needs, Steve dropped from Mama's radar too. The story of how Godot saved his brother grew with a retelling. The Alsatian became an ogre-sized beast that had its fangs on Steve when Godot blasted it to the next world and crippled forever. And other heroic deeds doted Godot's life. A charmed childhood. When a Matatu drove into a ditch near the house, Godot joined the crew that pulled it out. When a little girl almost drowned during a swimming lesson, it was Godot who pulled her out. Even though she insisted that she had not needed help, but by then, eh, the accolades had stuck to Godot. When Godot shot a winning goal in the most critical school soccer match of the year, a cheering crowd, including Steve, carried him home on their shoulders. Steve's chest felt full. His brother, his own brother, was such a hero. To much laughter that night, the father recalled the game, play for play, over and over, until Steve finally mumbled, mm, Godot is not Maradona. In the puzzled silence that followed, Steve offered, I was second in, in class this term. His father replied, Good, 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 uh, keep it up, keep it up. But after too short a time said, and now about that goal, Godot, eh? Hey! Baby Annie babbled, Godiro, Godiro. To invite back the laughter, Baba encouraged her to repeat it. Godiro, Godiro, Godiro. Noticing that Steve was not joining in, Mama said in a jolly voice, God willing, you will be fast next time. This made Steve feel worse. Smaller, 
for trying to insert himself in Godot's limelight. He felt confused, rebuked, unworthy, invisible, nauseous. He went to the toilet and puked. These new feelings about Godot felt too raw and complicated to share. Still, Steve continued to shadow Godot. Unlike other older boys, Godot not only tolerated his younger brother, but encouraged Steve to hang out with him. It was Godot who taught Steve how to pee in a perfect arc. It was Godot who taught him how to walk in low-slung jeans, sauntering legs apart, extra wide. Godot, who taught him to moonwalk. Perhaps it was not surprising then that Steve felt pleased when his brother sent him on errands or borrowed something. He lent him the Timex watch he got on his 11th birthday, and when Godot swam with it, causing it to malfunction, Steve took the blame. Baba immediately accepted the lie, despite knowing that Godot had borrowed the watch that day and how careful Steve was with his things. As a result, Steve refused to apologize and blurted that it was his watch to do with as he liked. Baba punished Steve by refusing to get the watch repaired. Steve still had that watch, its leather strap worn and its insides rusted. During their teenage years, Godot worked out, bulked up. When Steve gained weight, it looked like puppy fat. And when he lost it, became as slight as their father. Godot grew a mustache and beard that needed regular shaving. Above Steve's top lip and on his chin emerged whispers of hair not worth bothering about. Godot clearly expected people to look up to him. And they did. Everyone knew Godot, and those who didn't, pretended to. Bullies didn't touch Steve because of their unspoken threat of Godot. It was Godot, not their father, who escorted Steve to the Ngong Clinic to be circumcised. When the doctor approached with his cutting instrument and pulled his foreskin, Steve turned sideways and stared into his brother's eyes. Godot willed him not to cry. Not giving in to his terror that day was the bravest thing Steve had ever done, and the gratitude he felt as a result was intense. Afterwards, Godot pronounced him a man and forced on him a beer that got him drunk for the first time. Steve was a guy people squinted at, the nice-mannered one they couldn't quite place. Godot acted, Steve watched. Godot was noisy, Steve was not. Godot would have many girlfriends. Steve never recovered from his first teenage crush, the one and only Rebecca, who'd smiled at him from the choir at the Baptist church on Gong Road. Steve had only gone to church that fateful day because their mother was being presented as an elected elder of the church. Their father, who had an on-off relationship with what he called the white man's religion, had not attended the service. Steve sat with his sister, who, even at ten, was still referred to as Baby Annie. Godot had slipped out of church as soon as their mother had gone to sit in the seats reserved for elders. It was that long-ago smile that started, complicated, and eventually upset everything. After that smile, 
Steve arrived in church an hour early to bag a front-center seat. Too shy to approach, he found out Rebecca's name from another choir member, a girl, a classmate addicted to meals and boons and clearly delighted to be part of the secrecy involved in delivering Steve's anonymous love letters. Godot eventually teased the details out of Steve and dared him to ask her out. Steve invited Rebecca on what was supposed to be a double date to watch Jackie Chan in action at the 20th Century Cinema. When she smiled and said yes, the thrill of anticipation kept Steve on edge for a week. She had read his letters. She knew it was him. She had said yes. On the day, Godot's girlfriend did not show up. While waiting for her, they missed the black and white panorama clip the adverts, previews of forthcoming features, and the national anthem, key parts of the cinema experience that Steve usually enjoyed. He didn't mind that day, not with Rebecca in a yellow dress looking so lovely and smiling. And Gordo made it easy. He did the talking and sent Steve to line up to buy chocolate and soda treats. Rebecca sat between the brothers. In the flickering light of the film... Godot snaked his arm across the back of her seat. He pulled Rebecca to him, kissed her, and winked at Steve. Steve had winked back, a silly, reactive blink that he could never undo, did not know how to. He sat there, too stunned to think, until feelings grew and overwhelmed him. He dashed to the toilet, threw up. Then he marched the eight miles home and smashed the windscreen of the old Citroen with a rock until it shattered. Not once did the brothers talk about that date. With that wink back, he rationalized, how could Godot have taken Steve's feelings for Rebecca seriously? In any case, Rebecca had not protested and had in fact gone on to date Godot. Despite the charged look Rebecca sometimes gave Steve the few times he met her over the years, she had clearly chosen the hero over the average man. So Steve pretended their date had never happened. He convinced himself enough to live without the knowledge breaking him. Godot continued to live in the bubble of a heroic life until he didn't. Childhood ended, but Godot stayed the same. When he dropped out of university, his old friends fell away. The new ones were more reckless and didn't stick around when problems arose. Although his outgoing personality landed him more jobs and opportunities, they didn't last. Steve's complicated feelings about Godot reared their head more often. As soon as he landed a job after university, Steve moved away. He built a quiet life on a different tangent but he couldn't stop Godot occasionally roping him back to his excitements and dramas. And it seemed to make no difference how many times Steve denied himself or bailed Godot from the stream of troubles that followed him in his wake. Bar fights, termination letters, overdue payday loans, sparring girlfriends, jail. Steve was never allowed to forget that he owed his life to his only brother. A death that, oddly, weighed heavier now that Godot was dead. So those private words, woof woof ugly, 
tripping from Rebecca's mouth, made Steve churn and froth inside. Ah, uh, calling on Steve? You there, Steve? Rebecca was snapping her fingers in front of his face to wake him from his daydream. When she finally had his attention, she added, I'm ready. Let's go. Uh, uh, yeah, yeah, he said. To hide his feelings, he walked a step ahead of her as they made their way along the dusty pavement. Steve had loved his brother, but he was tainted with envy. If only he had had half the self-confidence, the swagger. If only he had the certain knowledge that the world rotated in his direction. If only Rebecca had chosen him. Um, I'm so, I'm so sorry, Rebecca said. I know it hurts. Steve heard the break in her voice and knew she was talking about Godot's death. He stopped for her to catch up, slung his hand across her shoulders. She paused and faced him. Right there on the street next to the crowded bus stop where the crab-like Kenya buses with broken chassis screeched to a stop, where Matatu touts pushed in one more passenger, where pish-posh cars flew by or Sundays trolled, and just as the church bells gonged, Rebecca held Steve and bent forward to give him a kiss. It was intended for his cheek, but Steve instinctively moved. Her lips met his. He almost screamed. An ache surged and settled in his body, and he weakly stumble-meandered ahead as crab-like as the buses, like the dong of church bells, Sniggers of amusement and clicking of tongues followed them. Nairobians frowned on public displays of intimacy. However, Steve wanted to do it again. Wondered if it would help obliterate memories of Godot and Rebecca. Rebecca held his hand as they walked, helping and hindering his balance. Without conscious plan, they arrived at Steve's block of flats in South B. It was quiet. No doubt most of the neighbors were exercising their throats in church. Rebecca huffed up the three flights of stairs. Steve ushered her in with an extravagant wave and was embarrassed to realize that he had not put away the remains of the previous night's ugali and empty cartons of maziwamala. Hmm, <sighs> ever the gentleman, she sighed. She sprawled on his brown sofa and, panting softly, closed her eyes. Steve cleared the table, sat on a high-backed plastic chair and studied Rebecca. She was so different from the girls he normally attracted. Cute and kindly carbon copies of his mother, slight background girls as unlike Rebecca as Steve was from his late brother. Even lying there in her unladylike manner, Rebecca had an odd effect on him, like his blood was flowing faster. He searched for the language to carry them into the territory of Godot and the pregnancy. This was difficult, even though she was lying back, eyes closed, her bump defined and huge, leading. Steve swung the chair back until his head rested against the wall, unconsciously mimicking her pose. He spoke up. 
I hope you're taking necessary care. Without opening her eyes, Rebecca responded, Of course I am. He wasn't sure she'd understood where he was going. Um, Godot wanted to uh, sort things out with you before, but he didn't, she snapped. You can't change that fact just because he's dead. He was confused and, and, and too scared. Ah, please, please, she said. She rested her hands on top of her belly. A silence descended and sat fat and heavy between them. It stretched until Rebecca said, in a weary tone, Your brother was a fool. That may be true, Steve started, and stopped himself from adding, But you chose him, not me. He, Steve, had given her up without a word, let alone a fight. But how it had hurt, secretly and deeply, just like his complicated feelings for his brother. Over the years, Steve had relived that moment in the cinema, mythologized that kiss, masturbated fantasizing that Rebecca's lips were on him, burning here, there, everywhere. He was clearly in the grip of something he had to suppress. He tried to look at her dispassionately. He studied the remains of her greasy red lipstick and the green on her eyelids, you're beautiful, Steve said. You don't need makeup. Rebecca opened her eyes, stared at him. You'd be beautiful if you'd open up, you know. Steve winced, and it came flooding back. How Rebecca always challenged Gordo, asked him why he bullied waiters, why he walked out on jobs, why he lied to his mother that he was on his way to see her. Godot would call Steve, perplexed that Rebecca sought explanations in order to understand him, not to win. Ah, man, she's groping my insides, ah, he'd say. She won't like what she finds in there. <laughs> Steve would crack, bitter with jealousy. One night... Godot had lied to Rebecca that he was at Steve's place. Rebecca had come to his flat, woken him at 4 a.m. to check for herself. Steve was too stunned to do anything but watch as she ranted. Afterwards, he'd gone back to the bed and humped his mattress to the vision of Rebecca's angry breasts poking their way into his flat, demanding, demanding, demanding. Steve pointed at the bump. Uh, Godot said you were trying to trap him. Rebecca drilled him with her green-lidded eyes. Steve, maybe you don't know this. You know, you're, you're shy with girls. But your brother, your brother and I had sex. We had sex many times. Like a biology instructor... Hands waving, fingers pointing, thrusting, pumping. Rebecca showed no mercy. A natural consequence of sex happened. These words slithered through cracks in Steve's mind, stirring the old ache, hard and painful. He squirmed in the unforgiving chair, 
Rebecca continued. <laughs> I knew almost right away. Told him. Guess what? He was cool about it. Bought me vanilla ice cream from Snow Cream, masala chips, kenchi kausha, urged me to eat for two. Then, at three months, I began to show. I was living at home. Dad and mom turned traditional, asked my aunties to find out who was responsible for breaking their favorite goat's leg. They wanted to know about dowry. Godo wasn't ready. Huh. You think I was? Rebecca smelled of hot red earth steaming after heavy rain. But I couldn't ignore this, she held the bump, any more than my parents could. I couldn't keep drifting, eating ice cream. I needed to know where things stood. So I asked Godot, and he said he had a headache and would think about it. Hmm. He disappeared. Even when I found out about the virus, he refused to talk to me. I eventually cornered him in some, some other chick's flat, told him he was a boy. He gave me 30,000, a note with the details of a doctor, and then shut the door in my face. Next I heard, Godot was at his father's house. But none of you, none of you bothered to find out what had happened to me. Steve rocked forward to stop himself from falling. He wanted to tell her he didn't know until the bitter end. When Godot folded over in his hospital bed, had gripped his sleeve and gurgled. <clears throat> sorry. I'm so sorry. Godot grasped for breath. I'm so sorry about Rebecca. Steve was not ready to hear the apology, but was in no position to reject it either. He had pretended to misunderstand. She's, she's still pregnant, <coughs> Godo said with a racking cough. Fuck! You didn't tell me? Steve started, but was stopped by the weight of despair encompassing Godo's coughing. It was too late to go down that track. When Godo quieted, Steve said, I guess you're not expandable until you have a duplicate. A duplicate. To emulate. After a long silence, Godot had mimed, slowly seesawing his bony finger between the two of them. <laughs> woof, woof, ugly. <laughs> the two brothers cracked up, mulling over their history, sweet and bitter. Then Godot said, in a surprisingly robust voice, the last thing he ever said to his brother. Raise my son to be like you. Steve had turned away, left the hospital, his eyes more feverish with fear than Godot's. Rebecca broke into his thoughts. Your brother was a coward. Steve jabbed his index finger at Rebecca and snapped, My brother was a hero! Godiro! 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 But it was not true. Or not all true. The hero and the coward lived in the same body and waited for a call that sometimes never came for either or both. 
Rebecca, please. Look, Godo was ashamed. Too scared to face you. Now he's gone, we just have to accept, forgive and carry on. Hmm? Rebecca reached for her bag and turned it upside down, scattering notebook, lipstick, tubes, powder, brushes, bits of Kleenex, cotton balls, bottles of pills, fat envelopes. Steve read the labels on the bottles. Retrover. Epiver. Paracetamol. Steve, you're a coward too. Rebecca picked up a stuffed envelope and flung it in the air. Money fluttered about the room. Then she picked another envelope and another and threw them too. 30,000 to get rid of our baby. Godot never had this kind of money. He got it from you. Steve buried his head in his hands. He remembered the afternoon Godot came to him for help. Standing outside Steve's bank that fronted the busy Mamangina Square, he'd sniped at Godo. <laughs> so, your misguided sperm costs a tao for every year of your life. Ugh. Papa, don't preach, Godo said, quoting a song that had scandalized parents and even been raised in parliament as an example of the foreign influences that were ruining the nation's children. But Steve could not stop. You have to swear never to come to me like this again. That is my only condition for giving you this money. It's the last time. With a sneer, Godot raised his finger to the sky and said, I swear never to beg my brother for money again. Then, one after the other, Godot pushed three envelopes with the 30,000 shillings Steve handed him down his trousers into his underwear. Fuck you, bro. What do you know about life? I know life is not about juggling spare wheels, said Steve. It's not about impregnating chicks with kids you don't want. <clears throat> You're only upset because I cheat on Rebecca, bro. But you don't know what it's like. You don't know what it's like to face facts. Huh, huh, you talk shit, smell like shit, behave shitty, said Steve hotly. They stared at each other. With his dirty clothes, unshaven beard and rough skin, Godot looked like he'd not slept, eaten or bathed for a long time. He'd lost weight. Steve added, and you look like shit too. Shit, shit, shit! The sun glinting off a glass building cast brilliant light, illuminating the unnatural glitter in their eyes. Sensing a fight, the ever-ready-for-entertainment Nairobi crowd of the insane and unemployed gathered, surrounded, <laughs> encouraged. Godot pushed Steve. Steve stumbled backwards, shouted, What the fuck is wrong with you? Pigaye! Someone said conversationally as the others in the crowd concurred, as though instructing one to beat another who did not know why he was being beaten was common sense. Godot obliged with a backhanded swipe that only landed because Steve was too perplexed to move. Godot coughed phlegmatically, as though to remove something deep and ugly within. When it subsided, the fight was gone out of Godot. He stared into Steve's eyes with such intensity that Steve felt a different kind of fear. What? Steve asked. What? Huh? 
you're my brother, said Godo, loading it with meaning. You know what's wrong with me. But Steve really didn't know. Perhaps it would be more accurate to say he chose not to know, did not have the mental strength to add the sum of the injured parts, at least not until two months later, when Godot moved back into the childhood bedroom in the last stages of his shockingly fast deterioration. During those final moments, Godot banned Mama from hosting prayers at home. To her and Baba, Godot refused to admit pain, rejected their company. <coughs> I'm saving myself for you, he'd say when Steve wiped him down or gently turned him or helped him to the toilet. Steve imagined the deathly microbes in the tissues Godo dropped, spotted with blood and mucus, their huge teeth seeking entry paths into warm bodies. Really, the disease was like an extra character lurking in the room, needing to be accounted for. In its presence, Steve was always battling with the facts that you couldn't catch AIDS by looking, being with, touching, even drinking from the same glass as the afflicted, for God's sake. He recognized the courage displayed in the celebrated image of Princess Diana hugging an AIDS patient. But still, Steve was revolted by the cancerous pustules that bubbled and opened on his brother's skeletal body. When Steve, with a gloved hand, covered the lesions with topical imiquimod cream, Godot sighed and smacked his lips in mock ecstasy. Afterwards, Steve would rush off to wash his hands. Godot chuckled, knowingly, like an old man amused at the foibles of a world that took itself too seriously. Sometimes Godot looked at Steve pleadingly. Mostly they watched television. Godot in bed, Steve in a chair beside him. A child in a commercial asked if the ocean existed because someone forgot to turn off the taps. Godot cracked in a hoarse whisper. Brother man, I think someone forgot to turn on your life. <laughs> <clears throat> Perhaps Godot was bitter that it was he, Steve, who'd survive instead of him who had had so much life in him. He attributed this along with the other hurtful things that Godot said as arising from bodily pain and anger of being reduced to a hacking shell. Steve held his tongue. But Godot knew how to stir things up. Looking intently at Steve, Godot said, I never planned to bring a girl on that double date. You sick bastard. Steve retorted and backed out of the room to hide his shock. <laughs> it's a good thing I'm dying, or you'd kill me yourself. <laughs> <coughs> Godo attempted to laugh it off. Hey, 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 <clears throat> I'm joking, I'm joking. I didn't think it would matter that much. I was young. She went, she went along and, 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 then, and then it was too late. Shuffling sounds broke through Steve's contemplation. With ungainly movements, Rebecca rose from the sofa. She shuffled past him towards the bathroom. He heard her pee. She'd obviously left the door open. 
Steve heard her scream, a long burst followed by several short ones. When he thought it was over, Steve said, I'm sorry, Godo. You messed your life. My life is not over. She peed again, on and on, long and short, like it was part of the conversation. Steve swung his chair back and forth, in tune with the peeing. When it stopped, he did too. He had a hard-on. Embarrassed, he forced himself to remember that this meeting was about Godo's son. He had Rebecca pour a bucket of water into the cistern to flush the loo, the water pressure too low on upper floors to autofill the system. He asked, <clears throat> How are you coping? With what? She waddled back into the room, wiping her hands on the flimsy dress, stood over him. Godot's disappearance? His death? The pregnancy? HIV? Steve cracked his knuckles and said, Yes. I curse every time I get gas or cramps. I pee too much and too often. I eat for ten. My doctor says HIV AIDS is just a disease, as though it's no worse than cancer or Ebola or whatever. My CD4 count is currently in the normal range, but that is not a guarantee that my child will not get it. <laughs> my mother swears that by the year 2000, there will be a cure, yet she walks around moping as though I'm already dead. My father talks politics investments, foreign wars, anything to avoid my issues. My sisters joke to try minimize the pain. Other relatives either smirk or shake their useless heads at me. My friends find reasons to party without me. I cry too easily and too much. What else do you want to know? Her hostility was a living thing, bristling in his direction. Um, I read that HIV-positive babies often turn... Oh, fuck this wishful thinking! I want to take care of you, Steve said, his voice unsteady. I, I want to help you. I, I want to help you take care of the baby. Why? Steve felt immobilized. What did she want him to say? Clearly, for her, actions fueled feelings, not the other way round. <laughs> no wonder she'd chosen Godo over him. As though reading his mind, Rebecca said, <laughs> Why feed on Godo's dregs? Stevenson Musioki Kilemi, can't you hook your own woman? Maybe it was the way she pronounced his full name, dragging it out. He didn't even know she knew it. She was so bitter. Perhaps, like Godot, it was to distract from the real obsession in the room. Fear. He stood up, reached for her hand. Rebecca, please let me be your friend. She smirked, cupped her breasts, lifting them so they spilled over the lacy neckline. What you really want is to poke me. Mm-hmm. You've been wanting since you saw me. Panting since I got here. Ah, yeah. Let's do it. It will clarify your motives and get me out of your system. Let's do it. That militant face. 
the injured tone, those heaving breasts, the heat of her smell. Who the hell did she think she was? Laughing at him, teasing. Steve pulled Rebecca, grabbed her down on the mess she'd spilled on the floor. Fuck you, he said. And fuck Gordo. Steve could barely breathe as she tore his shirt off just like he did her dress. Then they were scratching each other, removing underwear. He could barely contain himself as she fumbled about, changing positions so he was behind and at right angles to her. She whispered, careful, wait, wait, as Steve, trembling, raised her leg to lever himself. It may have been painful for Rebecca, but he couldn't stop. Not even when she said, condom, condom, tried to back away before giving in, slick, churning, burning, thrashing her head from side to side, gasping, shivery gusts. He finally had her. She was his. She was his. Steve stabbed again and again, exacting revenge on her, on Godot. Afterwards, he lay on his back, stared at the ceiling. A surge of hatred washed over him. All that love and jealousy she showed for Gordo. And yet here she was, naked. He's come inside her. She was probably unfaithful in his life as in his death. Fuck, maybe she was the one who'd infected Gordo. Killed him. Flashes of Godot's face in the casket washed over Steve, followed by a sudden conviction that the body next to him, so warm and womanly, could be so thin, marked with pustules that oozed cold and dead, and that he too could now be marked for death. The AIDS bullet shot through her into his body. His dick ached. Microbes with huge teeth were already gnawing away his life. He imagined deadly little critters stalking and coiling themselves into his cells, sweeping along his veins, eating him away. He was surely finished. Kaput! His scalp crawled. Sweat broke out on his forehead. He moved away from her and sat up. What is it? Rebecca asked. She sounded frightened. He ignored her, scattered her things, reached for the bottles. Without reading the label, he opened one, removed a couple of tablets, opened another. He threw them into his mouth and swallowed. She was wet, lubricated, he told himself. He wanted to get up and run to the nearest VCT clinic. He didn't want to die. Rebecca was crying, her big body heaving. Her weeping grew into howls of fear and distress like that dog of long ago. Had he hurt her? Damaged the baby? Or was she crying for Godot? He'd broken her. He felt sick. For years he'd hungered for this woman, and if Steve were brutally honest, probably loved and wanted her more because his brother had taken her. Perhaps the sex had been, for him, and perhaps for her, a way to reach and touch Godot now that he was quiet, dead. Rebecca had been their silent battleground, but also 
a kind of communion. Screwing her was at once a fuck you to Godot and an assertion of Steve's strength. He felt ashamed. Placing his fingers at his temples, Steve pressed and rotated the skin. It struck him that one required empathy in order to discern truth, some basis of similarity. Now that he was exposed, no longer could his I'm sorry also mean I'm glad it isn't me. He was he. He was his brother. He was her. He was all. Rebecca stopped crying. She blew her nose, wiped her face, and stood up. From the resigned way she reached for her clothes, careful not to look at him, he sensed that she'd come to the conclusion that, like his brother, Steve would run, disappear. When he held out his hand, Rebecca flinched. Steve persisted, moved closer to her. On his knees, he wrapped his hands around her belly, around his brother's embryonic son. He cried as he embraced everything. So much love, so much pain and death and life, and this child coming. Kissing Godo was read to you by Nick Ndeda and written by Mudoni Garland. Mudoni has published over 40 books for children, two novellas, and several stories for adults published in literary journals. Her anthology, Helicopter Beatles, is available on Amazon as an e-book. Mudoni is the chief judge of the Moorland Writing Scholarship and she also has judged the Kane Prize for African Writers. Mudoni is a founder member of the Writers Collective Story Moja, which publishes books for ages 4 to 16 years, and these can be purchased online at storymojaafrica.com. This episode was recorded at Afro Queer Studios in Nairobi. Special thanks to Tevin Sudi. Nipe's story is available to download wherever you get your podcast from. Please review, write, and share the podcast with your people. You can follow us here on SoundCloud, on Facebook we are Nipe Story, and on Twitter our handle is Nipe underscore story. Thank you for listening. Nipe Story is a finger piano production.